Hi, saints of God. Welcome to another episode of Talking Bible Truth with Dr. Kamala D. I am your host, Dr. Kamala D, here to help you grow in faith and walk in God's amazing grace. We are entering into part three of a five-part series called A New Covenant with Better Promises. In part two, we talked about the Ten Commandments. Do the Ten Commandments have a part in the New Covenant? The answer is no, it does not. I ended part two with a discussion about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Is everyone a child of God because we are his creations? The answer to that question is no as well. Now let's go a little deeper into the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Hi, saints. I hope all is well today. I want to cover in more detail the subject I began in the previous message concerning the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. In the previous message, I pointed out that we need to realize that the concept of God as the father of all mankind and the belief that all men are brothers is not biblically true. The idea may be philosophically sound, but the Bible does not indicate that this is the case. Granted, it seems reasonable that God would be the father of all because he is the creator of all. However, creator and father are two different things. You are not a child of God and God is not your father until you become his child. The only way you can become God's child is through adoption and Jesus is the adoption agency. However, there are certain requirements that must be met in order to complete the adoption process. For example, people adopt children all the time. They don't walk into the adoption agency and say, I want one of those or I want one of these. Even though agencies have placed children for adoption and are in need of adopting parents, they still do not indiscriminately give children to people. There are certain parameters prospective parents must meet certain requirements they must measure up to or else they cannot adopt the child. It is the same with the Almighty God. You are not God's child until you are adopted into his family. Once you have been adopted into the family through the Lord Jesus, you become what the Bible calls a Christian. Then you come under the law of the new covenant. Now, because it is so important for believers to understand this aspect of what it means to become a Christian, I want to cover supporting scriptures in the first chapter of John. As I said before, there are many people who are laboring under the illusion that they are children of God because they describe to the idea that God is the father of all mankind. The thing that is so sad about this concept is that they are going to get to the end of the line and find out that their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life because they did not go through the adoption agency. Now let's look at John chapter 1 verses 6 through 9. I'm going to be reading a lot of chapter in this particular message. Okay. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, and I'm reading from the traditional King James Version. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is referring to John the Baptist, okay? The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Let's take a, a, a closer look at verse 9, because if you do not understand what this verse is really saying, you might get into some trouble, okay? You may start having some problems. There are those who claim that everyone has a spark of goodness in them, and, and they use this verse to back this claim up. This light is the light of the knowledge of God. And every person who comes into the world has enough of this illumination. We are not talking about goodness. We are not talking about a spark of morality. We are talking about 
a consciousness and an awareness of the prime mover, God Almighty. There is that light in every man, okay? This does not mean that every man is a child of God. This does not mean that every man is going to be saved. It means that that light is, is in every man so that no man has any excuse for not believing in God unless that man was born in a way that he could not rationally think or exercise his will. In cases like that, we have to defer to the, to the mercy and all knowingness of God. We have to believe that God is not going to get any pleasure out of delivering a creature who is unable to respond to him to eternal damnation. It's like an adult who has a two-year-old mind. There's no way God would send this person to eternal damnation. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. Now, I'd like to go back to uh, the appeal Abraham made to God when God came down and appeared to him and said he was going to do something about Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham set himself between Sodom, Gomorrah, and, Sodom and Gomorrah and God by stating this. Perhaps there be 50 righteous within the city would thou also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? Far from thee to do after this matter. So, uh, I'm sorry, let me read that part over again. I was looking at something else and then trying to look at this. I'm Far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Now this is in Genesis chapter 18 verses 24 and 25. God told Abraham that if he would find 10 righteous people, he would spare the city. I I just I think Abraham stopped asking too soon. Consequently, he and God could not come up with the required number, so the city was wiped out. And during this discourse, However, Abraham said something that is important to all of us. He said this, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Therefore, for all those people who have something wrong with them from birth that causes them to, to be unable to make rational decisions, I believe we can trust God on their behalf, okay? At any rate, we are not talking about such people. We are talking about people who have the ability to make rational decisions. We are talking about the ones who know what is right and what is wrong. We are talking about people who have the ability to know there is someone out there who is responsible for all we see around us and that this supreme being is worthy of respect, praise, and worship. Now, it is interesting to note that as you study the history of mankind on earth, anthropologists have not found any cultures, regardless of how ancient or how primitive, that did or did not worship something, be it the sun, the moon, the stars, crocodiles, the river rats, dogs, cows, or, or whatever. We have people even worshiping trees. They worship the creation rather than the creator. I'm telling you, oh yeah, it's out there. Now, mankind has a need to worship something outside of himself. Because of this light that is in every man who is born into this world, making him aware of that fact that there is something out there that is bigger than himself to which he owes allegiance. People feel a need to worship. And I know that's why we have all these different religions out here. You know, people just feel the need to worship something and they just they decide to create their own religion. Now, until the light of the glorious gospel of Christ comes to a man, he will not be able to know that that light is on the inside. Therefore, he will uh, enter into a, a perversion of the light and he will never come to a full understanding of what that light is. Even though it is, is residing within him, it is only 
when the light of the gospel comes, that man knows what that light is. And he will then be totally satisfied in his inner man. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You hear some people say that you cannot prove the existence of God. According to the Bible, we can. However, I will discuss this later so that I can continue on with uh, these particular verses in the Gospel of John. Now, let's look at John 1, 9 through 11. That was the true light, which lighted every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, talking about Jesus. And the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now, concerning his own, his is referring to Jesus. Own is referring to the nation of Israel. When God made the covenant with Abraham, he told him that out of Abraham's loins, he would bring forth the redeemer and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, for those of you who want to know about uh, that, uh, what I just stated, you can go through, go to uh, Genesis chapter 49 and that's in verse 10. Now, because God had a covenant with Abraham in the beginning, God gave Israel the first right of refusal. In other words, God gave Israel the first opportunity to receive the Redeemer or either to reject him. Now, let's look at John 1 and 12. But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Now, the word power in the Greek means um, authority, right, or privilege. Evidently, before anyone was given the authority, right, or privilege to become a son of God, there was no way anyone could become his son. If one could have become a son of God before receiving this power, it would not have been necessary to give anyone this authority, right, or privilege. The Now, it, this immediately shoots down the concept of the fatherhood of, hood of God and the brotherhood of man. This shoots it right out of the water. This verse clearly lets us know that all people are not children of God. I know this verse, you know, may, may have bust a lot of bubbles for some people, but we need to call things as they are. And we need to accept the freedom God has given to us in his word and not to mix it up with our own concepts. Okay, saints? Notice something else here that is very important. I have uh, had many people say to me, I believe in God. I have always believed in God, and I, and I have believed in Jesus since I was a little child. Now, do you know that you can still go to hell believing that Jesus lived and, and believing that God is God? You do not get saved believing that Jesus is Jesus or that God is God. The Bible says the demons believe and tremble. They know Jesus is Lord and, and that he is king of kings, but demons are not saved. Because what goes along with believing is receiving. You can believe something and never receive it. And until you receive it, it does not do, do you any personal good. What you believe may be true, but your believing does not affect you personally until you receive it. You can sit down at a, at a table full of food, and I'm going to use this simple illustration, and say to yourself, I believe that if I eat this food, it will keep me from starving to death. Yet, you can starve to death right in the middle of the fanciest restaurant in the world. Unless you get some food into your body, you can die believing the food will keep you from starving to death. And, and, and that is something simple for you to understand. That's why I gave that illustration. Now, let's look at Romans 1, 17 through 20. Uh, it says this, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God had showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him, meaning the unseen things of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now this is saying, yes, God is invisible, but the world and the universe he created are visible. The way you know God exists is by the visible universe and the world he created. And God says, we are without excuse. In not recognizing him and his sovereign power, there is absolutely no excuse because it is all around us. God's creation is all around us. Now, what are some of the uh, invisible things of God? His power, his creativity, his beauty, um, his wisdom, his intelligence, uh, his order. These are just a few of the attributes of God and, and um, we cannot see with our eyes, but we see the results of these attributes. Now, let's look at Romans 1 and 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world, notice the last three words, are clearly seen. Okay? It does not say clearly perceived, leaving it, to, uh, leaving it up to some kind of rationale of your mind. Paul says seen. And anyone, okay, who is not blind, can see that this is a physical world. You can see it, touch it, feel it, and smell it. Let's look at Romans 1.20 again. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Now, what are the things that are made? The earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the whole universe even his eternal power. They have people that worship just the moon, not the creator of the moon, but they, they want to worship God's creation, the moon. Now it took some power to make this universe. It took some power to create this world. And it takes some power to keep all the stars and the planets and suns and galaxies all working perfectly without any hindrance and without any mess ups or errors. Everything works and it's supposed to work just as God designed it to. Everything is working just as he designed it to. So there is no excuse for anyone to say there is no God. We don't. We don't have any excuse. No one can get up in front of the high tribunal and try to argue God down. Well, you know, if I had seen you, Lord, you know, I would have believed in you. God says we, meaning the whole world and meaning all of mankind, are without excuse. We can see the world around us. We can see the universe around us. So we do not have any excuses, saints. Now let us get back uh, to our subject concerning the church and the Mosaic law. Now I like taking these little side trips, you know, because I believe they help us to understand more clearly the topic at hand. Now, Every person who has received Christ based on believing in him and every person who has received him and confessed him as Lord is considered the church, a Christian, a part of the body of Christ. This means he is now classified by God as being neither a Jew nor a Gentile. At one time he was a Gentile. But once he left the Gentile state and became a Christian, he no longer is a part of the Gentile world. It is the same with the Jew. If a Jew receives Christ as his or her savior, then he or she is no longer a part of the Jewish world. Let's look at this form, uh, from the standpoint of the Gentiles. Since the majority of, of my listeners um, are Gentiles, okay? In the book of Ephesians, there is a passage that gives indication that the church, the Christian, is not under the Mosaic law and never was. In fact, the Gentiles who are not Christians today are not even under the Mosaic law or the Ten Commandments. I have seen incident, incidents of a church recruiting children from the local community who were not even saved and bringing them to Sunday school to try to teach them uh, about keeping the Ten Commandments. Now, you cannot teach a dead person 
anything. If you think you can, go to the nearest cemetery of your choice and let us see you teach someone who is buried there. Now, that may sound comical to some and it may sound disrespectful to others. However, the point I am making is that you cannot teach someone until that person has life in them. People have to be alive in order to be able to, to uh, teach them. Spiritually dead people cannot be taught the word of God because the word is spiritually understood. And I can give you another illustration. Have you ever watched a secular award show and a gospel artist is invited and they get up there singing their hearts out, praising God and the majority of the audience, 90% is not moved because they are spiritually dead. That's why you have a handful of Christians there that are moved by that inspirational music, but the ones that are spiritually dead are not moved. Now, what these children needed was salvation, not teaching. They needed to know about Jesus. Once they accepted Jesus as their Lord, they could be taught the word of God, not the Ten Commandments, not the law of Moses, because as Gentiles, they never were under the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments. And we are Gentile saints. For example, usually the same law of any city, state, government, or nation that gives you penalties for breaking the law also has corresponding benefits for keeping the law. In other words, for doing what the law says, there are benefits that accrue to you, just as there are penalties that accrue to you for breaking the law. Now, if God required the Gentiles to keep the law of Moses, which included the Ten Commandments, the law of the Sabbath, etc., then by the same token, all the blessings of the law should also be theirs. Then tell me why there is so much sickness and disease amongst the Gentile world. Why? When one of the benefits of keeping the law was freedom from disease. Mm. God promised those who kept the law that, excuse me, he would take sickness from their midst and the number of their days he would fulfill. So if the Gentiles were to keep the law, then they should be getting the benefits. The reason they don't is because they have nothing to do with the law. Now, let's look at the Gentiles versus the church of God. Now, because we, we, start our, we started our discussion of Ephesians chapter 2, I want to establish to whom Paul is, is writing this epistle. Okay, let's look at Ephesians 1 and 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, that's clear, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, that's also clear. Geographically speaking, of course, this letter was written to the Christians at Ephesus. However, if um, the, the Christians at Ephesus are Christians in the same body of Christ we are in, and God is their heavenly father, then the law should work for us, right? as well as for them, even though they were in Ephesus and we are in another part of the world. If we are, are, are citizens of the United States, the Constitution supposedly gives us the same privileges whether we are in New York or in California. Now, you may come into conflict with some local laws, but the nation's constitutional laws are governed the same the same way everywhere by the same Supreme Court, no matter where we live in America. Now, whether this is talking about the saints at Ephesus some 2,000 years ago or the saints in the United States during this present time, it does not make any difference because we are all a part of the body of Christ. Okay? Now, let's look at... Um, uh, Ephesians 2 and 11 but look since we have established that Paul is writing to Christians everywhere at all times let us go on to the second chapter of Ephesians okay wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands that was Ephesians 2 and 1. 
Now, we immediately see that these Ephesian Christians had been Gentiles because Ephesus was basically a Gentile city rather than a Jewish one. If Paul had been writing this letter to Jerusalem, he more than likely would have said that ye being in time past Israelites in the flesh because Jerusalem is a Jewish place. But here he says, wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles, apparently they were no longer considered Gentiles. They were now considered the body of Christ or Christians. In the book of Genesis, we are told how God established a covenant with Abraham. In that covenant, God gave Abraham a sign or a seal of that covenant, which was circumcision. After a male child was eight days old, he was to have the foreskin of his penis removed surgically. It was a peculiar sign. We have no record that anyone else as a nation in the world had circumcision as a sign of a covenant, only the nation of Israel. Consequently, many times when others would refer to these covenant people who were also known as Hebrews uh, or Jews, chosen people or Israelites, they will sometimes call them the circumcision. Therefore, whenever anyone heard someone talk about the circumcision, that person would know he was talking about the Hebrews or Israelites. The Jews, on the other hand, because they had this peculiar covenant seal, which no one else had, would refer to the rest of the world as the uncircumcised or either the uncircumcision. Instead of using the term Gentile, they would say the uncircumcision. And anyone listening would know they were talking about non-Jews. This is what is being discussed in the latter part of the 11th verse of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 2. Now let's uh, look at verse 12. That, all, uh, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Wow, these are some powerful scriptures, but they are revealing scriptures. Now notice they were called aliens and strangers to the covenant. So wait a minute. If they were strangers to the covenant, how could they be expected to keep the law of, of, of that covenant? That means the Gentiles are not under the law and neither is the church. Now let's take another step to uh, enable us to confirm this. Any man who has not received Christ as his savior is outside of the family of God. Therefore, when he or she dies, he or she will go to hell. You know, now many people do not like to talk about hell, but it does not bother me at all because I don't plan on going there. Okay. Now, many people have the idea that hell is a place where where God is going to send you at the end because you did you know you did not do a certain thing no that is not true at all you are already on your way to hell if you are outside of Christ there's only one reason for a person to go to hell only one sin that gets a man into hell think of a man being the biggest anything bad you can imagine you know a murderer a whoremonger a dope dealer, you know, a rapist, a child molester, an abortionist, whatever bad you can name, he is it. Now, on the other hand, think of how good a person can be, you know, sweet, kind, nice, law-abiding, moral, never does anything wrong, never has a bad thought, you know, just a good moral person. Do you know that when both of these, these men come to the end of their lives, both will end up in hell? They both will end up the, the, the very same way. It doesn't make any difference how they have lived, whether good or bad. And I said this before and got some flack, but hey, bring it. I don't care how, how nice and kind Mother Teresa was. And in my personal opinion, Mother Teresa was the biggest philanthropist the world has ever seen. But if she did not accept Christ in her heart as her personal savior, 
Mother Teresa is in hell. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm giving you that illustration so that you can understand the importance of being in Christ and being under this new covenant. Okay. It has nothing to do with works. It is not what you do or don't do that gets you into hell. You only go to hell for one sin. And that sin is, it, it's found in, 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 in the gospel of John 16, beginning at verse seven. This is Jesus Christ himself speaking. Okay. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient, meaning or necessary for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter, meaning the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me. Not believing on Jesus is the only sin that gets one to hell. Okay. On a first class ticket. Oh yes. You, you, you will definitely have a reservation if you are outside of Christ. Now, of course, believing on him implies receiving him according to John one and 12. It is the whole concept of believing and receiving and confessing Christ as Lord. If you don't confess Christ as Lord, then you reject the love of God offered through his son. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, saints. Now, think about this. What greater sin could you commit than to reject the love of the almighty God? Jesus himself told us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's John 3:16. Everybody knows that scripture. Whether you believed and received it, you still heard it. Now, if you reject God's provision, that is the one sin that will get you into hell. Now, some folks think they are earning their way into heaven by keeping the law of Moses and, and keeping the Ten Commandments and by going to church on Saturdays or, or by following this or, or that tradition. They are wrong. It, it's I, it, as simple as that. They are wrong. The Bible says you go to heaven because you accept Christ or you go to hell because you reject him. And, and, and that is just the way it is, saints. That's just the way it is. Now, let's talk a little bit about the work of the Holy Spirit. Let us look again at what Jesus says about those who are going to be rejected and those who are going to be accepted by him. Let's look at John 16, verse 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin. Now, notice that it says sin, S-I-N, and not sins, S-I-N-S. Some people think that if they do this or, or, or if they do that uh, they, uh, or, or they commit sin, for example, it is a common belief that if a person commits suicide, he or she will automatically go to hell. Where is that found in the Bible? Where is that scripture? I remember somebody told me that years ago and me out of my ignorance believed it. It simply is not in the Bible. Suicide is not going to get you into hell. Suicide is going to get you into the grave. You will not go to hell any quicker for committing suicide than you would for committing rape or murder or fornication or any other sin. It is not those individual things that put people in hell. These passages of scripture very clearly explains what puts people in hell. Now, let's look at John 16, 9 again. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Now, that is the sin that puts people in hell, saints. Not accepting Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord. It is not that God is going to arbitrarily punish you because you do not become a Christian. Jesus is the only way out. That's just it. Now, if you do not accept the, the only way, the only way out, what else is there for you to do? If a building is on fire and burning down and, and the roof is, a, is about to cave in and there is only one door out, 
and you do not go out that door, tell me how are you going to get out of the building? You are not. Well, Jesus is the way out of sin. If you do not accept him, you cannot get away from the condemnation sins bring. It is not that God is standing over you with a gun demanding that you accept his son. It is just that uh, that Jesus is the way the system is designed. That's it. The system is designed that that Jesus is the door and he's the only way out of sin. The only exit route is Jesus. OK, so if you do not accept him, there is no way out for you and, and you will go straight to hell and not enough Christians or not enough enough pastors not Christians. I'm talking about teachers are telling people this. Now, of course, the other things are wrong as well. They are bad and Christians should not do them, but they are not the things that will take you to hell. Your good works or lack of good works will not get you into heaven or hell. Okay. It is, it is accepting or rejecting Jesus that does that. Now, when I tell people this truth, I have, I have had some individuals come up to me uh, and say, well, what about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Now, what is the purpose and the job of the Holy Spirit? Now, the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of all mankind. How does the Holy Spirit bear witness to that fact? He does it through the ministry gifts Jesus has set in the church, such as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I am an evangelist and I am a certified teacher in the body of Christ. As these ministry gifts operate under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, preaching or teaching Jesus Christ and his word, they give testimony to the world concerning the reality of Jesus. Now the Bible says he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has neither forgiveness in this world nor in the world to come. You know why? It is because I meant, uh, as I mentioned before, there is only one exit out of the burning building. If you do not take the exit door out, you cannot get out. So you are going to burn up in the building. Now, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to reject the Holy Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus as being the way, the truth and the life. If you do not accept that testimony, how are you going to get saved? You can't. Someone might say, well, I did not vote. And I'm here to tell you a no vote is the same as a vote against. You either are for Jesus or against him. There is no in between. And it is you who must make the choice. I remember watching a blogger on YouTube, a male blogger. And he was bashing Christians and their behavior and their judgmental spirits of him. And he said, you know what? Look, I just believe in God and that's it. And my heart went out to him because what people don't know is that Christianity is about Jesus. It's not about Christians. So we as the ministers of Christ, we need to direct people to Jesus, not Christians. We are to focus on Jesus. Remember Paul told the Corinthian church that I cease not to preach Jesus and him crucified. That is what we should never stop doing. We have to get back to the basics, preaching the gospel. Okay, church. Now, what did the early church have to say about keeping the law? Okay, let us move on to the book of Acts chapter 15 and see what the early church said about the law of Moses, about the Sabbath day, about the Ten Commandments, about circumcision and, and so forth. Now, let us start at the beginning of the church age, which is the beginning of our age. We are in the same church that Peter, James, John and the rest of the original apostles were in. There is only one church, saints. So let us start at the beginning of this church age and find out how the founding fathers dealt with this matter of keeping the law. If what we do today is consistent with what they did in the beginning, 
then what the Bible says as uh, uh, has to satisfy every preacher, every theologian, every denomination, every church, and every member in the body of Christ. Let's look at Acts 15 and 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Notice how they related salvation to keeping the law of Moses. There are people today who will tell you that if you do not go to church on a Saturday, you cannot be saved. If you do not keep the Sabbath, you cannot be saved. If you do not abstain from eating certain kinds of foods, you cannot be saved. They were saying this over 2000 years ago also. And we have men who are saying the same thing in this very day and time. Circumcision was a sign, a covenant sign that God gave to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob and his 12 sons. It was given to the nation of Israel. It was not given to the Gentiles. It certainly was not given to the church. Because the church was not even there at that time. Now, let's look at Acts 15, 1 through 10. I'm going to do a lot of reading here um, as I, I get close to the end of part three. But I'm about to do a lot of significant reading. Okay. Now, Acts 15, 1 through 10. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now, let me digress here for a second. I'm not really going to digress, but I'm going to move away from the scripture because I want to explain to you as we go. These men were saying that salvation was based on works because it is a work to circumcise and be circumcised. This teaching was in direct opposition to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which teaches that salvation is a gift of God and is to be received by faith. Okay, now let me resume. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. Now, let me uh, stop here for a second. They had a question about this matter. They needed to go up to Jerusalem because that was where the mother church was located and, and where the apostles were residing. You see, we are not unique in having questions, okay? These men who had walked and talked with Jesus, who knew him intimately, had questions. Now, now let me uh, move forward. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversation of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us. Now, I want you to notice here that Peter is making a distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. He was himself a Jew, and he told of how God gave opportunity for the Gentiles to receive the word through him, a Jew. It was Jews who were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, not Gentiles. 
Now let's continue and put no difference between us and them purifying, I'm sorry, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, that's Acts 15 verses 1 through 10. Now, they called the law of Moses a yoke. And that is exactly what it is. The reason it was a yoke was because before the time of Jesus, no one could, could, uh, could be born again. Mankind was spiritually dead, cut off and, and alienated from God. And the only way God could deal with them was in an outward, physical, tangible way. The Lord gave the Jews this outward law to give them something to shoot for until Jesus came with righteousness for, uh, for those who would receive him. Through their obedience to following that law as best they could. God accounted their obedience for righteousness. Now, Peter called the law a yoke. He said their fathers, meaning their predecessors, could not keep it. They couldn't keep it. So why put that law on the Gentiles? Okay. Now, let's, let me read this again. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simon had declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this Agree the words of, of the prophets as it is written. After this, I will return and I will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof. And I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, said the Lord, who doeth all these things known unto God are all his words, or I'm sorry, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Talking about us. Okay, saints? This is talking about the Christians, non-Jews who have turned to God. Now, let me continue. But that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time had in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barnabas and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words subverting your souls saying you must you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. Now, these were the apostles who were with Jesus. You hear me? There is no one standing in any pulpit in this nation or anywhere else in the world today whom God has told to tell anyone that, that they must be circumcised or that he or she is to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. If God did command this by the Holy Spirit today, he will be in contradiction to his own word. You hear me? And the Bible says that God is not confused, nor can he lie or contradict himself. Now, therefore, no one has a right to determine or demand that anyone keep the law of Moses today when they expressly did not do it at the beginning of the church age. It seemed good unto us 
Look, I'm looking. I'm reading Acts 15, 11 through 29. That, that I started there. Now I'm picking up. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Now these men claim that this was the word from the Holy Spirit. You hear me? Now if what the Holy Spirit said satisfied them, guess what? It had better satisfy you and, 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 and the first you know what church okay down on the corner uh, of the you know what street and avenue it has to satisfy them as well if it satisfies the holy spirit friend it has to satisfy us that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication from which if ye keep yourselves you shall be well Fare ye well. And Paul says, let me repeat that. He says, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. That's Acts 15, verse 11 through 29. Read all of it here. Now, that is the end of their letter. That is the end of their communication. Notice what is conspicuously or conspicuous in its absence and that is that they said nothing about keeping the sabbath day they said nothing about circumcision they said nothing about following the ten commandments they said nothing about keeping the law of moses how readest thou how are you or who are you going to believe the first church on second avenue on so-and-so boulevard the so-and-so denomination or the bible I hope you took time to read this in your Bible. You know, write down these scriptures, Acts 15 verses 11 through 29 or Acts 15 chapter 1 through 29. Okay, if you cannot trust your own Bible, you need to get rid of it and, and, and get one you can trust. Now, there is a passage in the Old Testament that adds fuel to the fire and supporters uh, and, and supports what we have already covered concerning the law of Moses and keeping of the Ten Commandments. Now, I am going to stop here, saints, and you can stay tuned for my closing remarks. Wow. Praise God for that message. Amen. I hope you enjoyed part three of A New Covenant with Better Promises entitled The Fatherhood of God and the Brotherhood of Man. If you have any questions or comments about this series, please feel free to send your questions to trustgod55.cd at gmail.com and I will personally respond to your email. You can also send me a voice message through my Anchor homepage or my Spotify homepage. Part four is entitled The Work of the Holy Spirit. This is going to be my favorite part of the series. Since so many people I encounter are confused about the Holy Spirit and its purpose. Now, until next time, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We walk by faith and not by sight. I am your host, Dr. Kamala D. Rightly dividing the truth in peace and love. See you next time.